This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department will release its Zero Trust Architecture Strategy later this year. Acting DOD Chief Information Officer John Sherman says the department's at a, quote, inflection point on zero trust and security. FedScoop reports Sherman said the aim of the strategy will be to include the technical, cultural, and strategic elements of zero trust. The General Services Administration is committing to using 100% renewable electricity by 2025. The agency says that goal is one part of its plan to get to net zero fossil fuel use by 2030. GSA is also setting up a federal building decarbonization task group. The Justice Department's getting a new Deputy Chief Information Officer. Kevin Cox will leave his job at CISA at the Homeland Security to go back to justice. FedScoop reports his last job at DOJ was Deputy Chief Information Security Officer. The latest Government Accountability Office audit of the U.S. government shows plenty of room for improvement in financial reporting. One former Comptroller General has new ideas to fix the way the government does financial auditing. David Walker's distinguished visiting professor at the U.S. Naval Academy. He's writing about financial reporting in GovExec. Dave, I love talking to you because you're not afraid to do the same thing you did as CG, which is tell people they might be doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> what are some of the most important things that the government should do now in regards to financial and performance auditing? Well, first, Francis, I think it's important to recognize that accounting is how you keep score and how you keep score matters. In addition, independent audit auditing is a critically important element to ensure consistency and reliability. So with that, with regard to financial reporting, there's a number of things that need to change for the federal government. First, believe it or not, uh, the several trillion dollars that are owed to Social Security and Medicare in U.S. government debt guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States is not shown as a liability in the financial statements. That's got to change. Secondly, we have huge sums that are off the balance sheet in the sum of tens of trillions of dollars, unfunded Social Security and Medicare obligations, if you will, that we need to recognize that the federal government is different. We should have assets, liabilities, and unfunded obligations and show different subtotals, uh, if you will. And then when we look forward in, in trying to project fiscal sustainability and intergenerational equity, you know, we need to recognize that debt to GDP is too high right now and it's increasing. So when we show that information, we need to come up with a reasonable level of debt to GDP that we're trying to achieve over time and show what the implications are with regard to taxes, spending, and different generations. Those are just three of many things that I think would help significantly. Um, you very conveniently, and I appreciate this, divided your list into uh, your, li your top 10 list into fives. The first five are financial and performance reporting, and the second are financial audits. There's a couple in particular there I want to ask you about. Number six is financial statement audits below the department-wide level shouldn't be required, including in the Defense Department. That's one of the ones that I imagine, especially congressionally, will make people get up in an uproar, Dave. Well, first, uh, let's take the Defense Department as an example. 
The Defense Department is trying to audit 24 different entities within the Defense Department in order to be able to get to a consolidated audit on the Defense Department as a whole. By definition, all 24 of those are not material to the department as a whole. Uh, you know, every major department and agency has been able to achieve an unmodified opinion on its financial statements except for the Defense Department. And so what I say is, is that after every major department and agency has achieved an unmodified opinion on the financial statements, and DOD is going to be the last, then we ought to recognize what's really meaningful to the public. What's meaningful to the public is the consolidated financial statements of the U.S. government, and then those departments and agencies that either issue debt or are supposed to be self-sustaining on their own. For example, uh, like uh, the Postal Service. Uh, anything other than that would still be subject to audit, but you wouldn't express, express a, a separate opinion on their financial statements because it's not necessary, and frankly, it's just costs that you don't need to incur. Number seven is GAO should assume responsibility for auditing the Defense Department. Other than creating a lot more work for our mutual friend Asif Khan, what would that accomplish versus having the Inspector General uh, at DOD continue to oversee the audit? Well, first, I think it's important to understand that the Inspector General should still be involved. There's no question about that, and, and their assistance will be important. In addition, it's going to take a number of independent audit firms to be involved as well, because let's face it, the Defense Department is the largest single entity in the United States as a subcomponent of the U.S. government. Uh, but the GAO is responsible for the consolidated financial statements of the U.S. government. And the single biggest obstacle to being able to express an opinion on those financial statements is the Department of Defense. And therefore, in my view, they should assume responsibility with the assistance of the Inspector General, with the assistance of independent auditors, because they're the ones that ultimately will decide whether or not it's acceptable and whether or not it's enough for them to be ex express an opinion on the consolidated financial statements of the U.S. government. There's a lot more in this piece I recommended to folks. Uh, it could wrap up, Dave. In your vision, does GAO continue to do the DOD audit forever, or is this a period where it gets to a certain place and they hand it back to the IG? What does that look like? Well, again, over time, I think you don't, you don't necessarily need an audit opinion on the DOD standing alone. You need an audit opinion on the consolidated financial statements of the U.S. governments, and those departments and agencies are supposed to be self-sustaining, if you will. Uh, now, at that point in time, you can turn it back over to the IG that they will be doing work along with independent auditors that will be necessary for the GAO to express consolidated opinion. Uh, one last thing, Francis, performance uh, reporting is important too. We, we need to have key national indicators and, and there, those need to be integrated with resources to see what kind of results are we getting with the resources that, that are being given and the authorities that are being given. That's an important element as well. David Walker, thanks very much for joining me. Great to have you back on the program. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to his piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, the coronavirus could change acquisitions forever. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the culture changes in the procurement community that should stick around after people stop wearing masks. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. Acquisition teams across government are examining the methods they use to get what they needed quickly during the pandemic. The task is to apply the speed the pandemic drove to everyday acquisitions when there isn't a pandemic. Joe Jordan is CEO at Octoparo. He's former administrator of federal procurement policy. Joe, I quote Andrew Jurnell, who is the Food and Drug Administration's Director of Information Technology Acquisitions uh, uh, through Federal News Network. There's a new level of expectation. You guys did an acquisition in a month during the pandemic. Now you're going to tell me it takes nine months. Are we finally at the point where people are just not going to put up with it anymore because they know it doesn't have to work that way? I hope so. I think it's a totally fair uh, question and, and point. Um, I think what we saw during the pandemic, whether it was PPE at the beginning or uh, the vaccine um, creation and distribution that runs through today is, is really an excellent example of when you have clear requirements, when you have everybody working together, when you buy solutions, not just try to guess at what um, you're gonna need, you can really get some amazing results, get high quality products and services quickly. It, to the point of trying to eliminate some of those things that people think they have to do, Dan Gordon started Mythbusters when he was OFPP administrator before you, you continued it. Is it maybe time to revive that campaign or some campaign to remind CEOs that they don't have to do all the things that they think they seem to think they have to do? You know, Francis, you've got uh, my heart aflutter when you talk about Mythbusters. I really appreciate that. I think, you know, whether it's just people going back and reading what was in there, uh, there were three different ones that came out, or whether it's a refresh of some of those by uh, you know the current team. Either way, it's great. Yeah, those were all geared around. There was one set of uh, myth busting done towards government folks. Again, all saying here's how you can go out and do innovative things. You can take risks. It's good. It's okay. And then a whole set aimed towards industry. To your point about look, guys, you know it's not about the government imposing all these unnecessary rules. It's about a regulatory framework that's required by the law. And so make sure you operate within that. But here's all these other things you can do to help everybody move quickly. And so um, I think Mythbusters is a great idea. And then also we've seen great reliance on improved data and technology tools. And we really want to continue that as well. The benefit to the continuity there, too, is that the acting administrator of federal procurement policy right now has been there for a while, and she knows very well what she's doing. Leslie Field was your deputy, Dan's yes. deputy, when she was there, uh, when they were, when you were both there. So that that body of knowledge, that 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 repository of information, already exists, doesn't it, Joe? It's there to be disseminated again. You're absolutely right, Francis. I mean, that's what's so great about the Office of Federal Procurement Policies. And I'll just speak to my own experience, not for Dan or Ann or, or Mike Wooten, but, you know, Leslie, Matthew and Joni, I mean, they're 99% of, along with all of the great team underneath them, but 99% of the leadership of that office, like we who step in and uh, help from the political appointee standpoint um, can maybe you know, talk in a different way to political leadership in the White House. But in terms of that real institutional knowledge um, and desire to see things improve, they're the best. And so, yes, I think there's no need to wait on something like this, which 
is it going to have, you know, a Republican or a Democratic point of view? Everyone wants these sorts of improvements. Um, and I think it's great. And I, you know, one other thing from the vaccine uh, pandemic purchasing that's it's great is you saw an example of, you know, long term established pharma players and newer pharma players being part of, you know, kind of the big three in domestic vaccine production. And that's the type of thing when I talk about businesses in any goods or services industry. Yes, you're going to have the typical, you know, large beltway contractors and you're going to have some innovative small businesses and neither one is right or wrong. But having that mix is great. How much of this then is incumbent on industry to say to the contracting officers that they're dealing with, here's a way that you could do it, still do what you, meet all the marks that you need to, to meet and do this in a month instead of nine months? Yeah, there's definitely um, a piece of this that's on industry to communicate those sorts of things to their uh, government and agency partners. I think, you know, you, from an industry point of view, you want to make sure you've got that trusted relationship. Sometimes you can be skittish on, hey, if I go, you know, tell my agency or potential customer, here's how you can do things. Well, they might just take that idea and go to one of my competitors to execute it. Um, so, you know, you got to move past that. And just like you said, you know, have that free flowing trust based dialogue uh, around solutions. And, uh, you know, you can do great things. And there's no reason that that can't be the norm. There's no reason it has to be, you know, something that only happens in response to a global pandemic. And I really hope that, uh, you know, what we've seen here is you know, the catalyst for that sort of mindset and the foundation for those sorts of policies and procedures. All right, back to inside the agencies, Joe. What changes the culture? How much of it, of it should be collaborative and how much of it should be orders from the top down? We're just gonna do it this way from now on. So what changes the culture is incentives. We don't have the proper incentives to get uh, everyone on a, an acquisition team or in the acquisition ecosystem to really want to move quickly and to embrace innovative techniques because there's not a lot of upside if you do that. And there's you know risk of a GAO or IG report saying you did things wrong if you do. And so um, I think that's the biggest thing. And where leadership plays a role isn't in that directive top down, this is how we're going to do it, but in a more supportive and positive, look, guys, I want you to take risks. I want you to embrace innovation. We are going to set these bold goals for speed and quality. But when things go wrong, which sometimes they will, I'll take the bullet. I'll go to the hill. I'll sit down with the IG and explain why we're doing this. Don't worry. You know, we'll we'll lift you up for the positives and I'll be your shield for kind of the slings and arrows that will come from the typical oversight folks. And, and I think then you will get that kind of cross-functional, cross-agency, cross-departmental effort. Joe Jordan, thanks very much as always. Great to see you again. Thanks for having me, Francis. Up next, stopping homegrown ter domestic terrorism before it happens. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the executive branch's job to keep the lid on extremism. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The most recent Department of Homeland Security threat assessment lists racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists 
especially white supremacist extremists, as the, quote, most persistent and lethal threat in the homeland. Curbing the violence could start with a change the way the government looks at policy. Katrina Mulligan's managing director for national security and international policy at the Center for American Progress. She's former security policy analyst at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Katrina, welcome, and thanks very much for coming on the program. You worked on this uh, at Center for American Progress with a team from the McCain Institute. You have five recommendations here, and I want to focus on the first area of recommendations, the executive branch. You write in this work that prioritizing the threat of white supremacist violence across federal government departments and agencies is the biggest step here. Katrina, what are all of the areas beside DHS that need to focus on this issue in the executive branch? Well, the, the most obvious one is, is the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which, um, which are you know, largely responsible, for example, most, most visibly right now for prosecuting um, the, the folks who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. But I think that there are also increasingly signs um, that this is not just a problem that's limited um, to being a domestic problem, that there are actually transnational links um, that we need to be concerned about between what's happening here at home and um, threat actors overseas. And so in those situations, it's appropriate for the intelligence community to also get involved. You also cite in this work the Education Department, Labor Department, HHS. What are their roles in your view? So a lot comes down to, you know, mental health um, and, you know, what's going on in, in local communities. This isn't a problem that the federal government alone can solve. Um, there's going to have to be partnership with um, state and local law enforcement, but also with um, some of the federal agencies that provide services to people, because many of the people who are involved um, in white supremacist extremism who are motivated to commit acts of violence have other underlying health and mental health issues um, that are contributing factors. Uh, another recommendation here is enhancing cooperation with state, local, and tribal law enforcement organizations. Is that primarily a Justice Department function? Is that FBI or is that, does that, would, would that live somewhere else? So a lot of that can happen with the Department of Homeland Security, which actually has robust vehicles for um, grant making at the state and local level and setting um, national policy. But obviously um, the Department of Justice has a significant role. Um, and you know, one of the really interesting ideas is creating a new, um, a new criminal statute um, at the federal level, a criminal anti-militia statute. Um, those are statutes that exist at the state levels, but are difficult um, to enforce, uh, largely for political reasons. So there is an, a strong argument, it's certainly worth studying whether um, a criminal anti-militia statute would make sense. Another element of this uh, area of recommendations is allocating federal resources commensurate with the threat of white supremacist violence within existing federal prioritization frameworks. What frameworks already exist that those resources would go to? So there, um, in the federal um, in the federal system, uh, particularly at the FBI, there is a threat um, review and prioritization process, um, and and currently. Um, white supremacist extremism and domestic extremism more broadly is a priority one in that framework. But what you see is um, a real differentiation in the in how resources are being allocated. Um, you see that um, domestic extremism is getting nowhere near um, the level of resourcing um, within the Bureau and elsewhere that other priority ones are getting. And so part of what we're arguing is resource according to the threat and don't try to let politics um, get in the way. So you don't have to equivocate with 
Antifa and put resources against something where we aren't seeing the same level of uh, violence um, and, and lethality um, as we do against white supremacist extremists who are disproportionately causing, um, causing harm. Your team, the CAP team, and the McCain Institute for International Leadership team also cite an international element uh, to this collaboration with the executive branch. What does that look like, Katrina? So I think that is about collaborating with international partners, academic institutions, and nonprofits, and and joining the Christchurch call. I mean, um, it's it's easy to forget because we've had so much going on here at home in the last 18 months that a lot of um, real the, the eyes of the world were on Christchurch when um, when a, a gunman went in and and killed you know dozens of of worshippers in mosques. Uh, you know, we, we have a problem that is really big here at home, but it's also got links abroad, and we're going to have to work as an international community um, to really get our hands around it. Um, the last element in this one of five recommendation uh, groups that you and your team make, establish a funded and staffed lead executive branch task force or committee. What would that committee do, and how do you make that not another task force like we see in Washington all the time that does work for 18 months and then disappears, never heard from again. Well, in this case, I would love to have a task force that disappears and is never heard from again if we actually solve the problem. Um, I think that, um, you know, I've been very heartened to see what the Biden administration is doing. Um, they've established a lead for looking at domestic extremist violence. Um, and I believe that they have a, um, a strategy that's going to be unleashed um, probably in the next couple of weeks. Um, they had a 100-day mandate, so we're coming up on that time frame now. Um, I'm certainly very interested to see what they come out with, what their recommendations are, and the extent to which they align with the recommendations in our report. Katrina, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Great to be here. Don't forget, you can find a link to her work at govmatters.tv slash resources. And if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website, too. You get a preview of every one of our newscasts. When you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies 
to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's, it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services. And these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a uh, a plan for transforming, and it didn't. The, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies, and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies 
and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.